So let's just go ahead and address that question that everyone really wants to know. Yeah, 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 Infinity War, Thanos, blah, 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 blah. But does Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 deliver that Tango and Cash reunion moviegoers have been desperately waiting for? Let's find out. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this week's episode, we're going to be taking a not-so-surprising trip to the Marvel Cinematic Universe for the 15th film in the franchise, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. That's right, those intergalactic a-holes that writer-director James Gunn took from obscure Marvel Comics title to a worldwide box office take of $773 million, making bizarre characters like Rocket Raccoon and Groot into household names in the process are back on the big screen once again. But before we hop aboard the Milano to see whether Star-Lord and company's sophomore adventure is up to snuff, let's journey into the MCU sequel's past with another edition of Let's Talk About Six. Let's talk about six, baby. Let's talk about flicks and me. Let's talk about what the good films and the bad films are to me. Let's talk about six. Let's talk about six. So luckily, this ranking works out perfectly this time, seeing as Marvel Studios has actually released exactly six direct sequels across its interconnected web of stories. Today, we're going to be ranking them not solely based on quality, but also in how well they propel each individual franchise forward, building the MCU along the way. So coming in at number six, we have Iron Man 2. Now this, for me, is by far the easiest ranking to decide. Of course, this is the sequel to the 2008 film, also directed by Jon Favreau, that started it all, and it has style to spare, but unlike its predecessor, the glowing heart behind Tony Stark's titanium alloy breastplate has faded a bit in between films. Um, There's certain elements of this one that work. I mean, you can see the link to the Monkeys Fighting Robots article I wrote about the elements that Iron Man 2 actually does contribute to the MCU. But largely, this sequel duplicates Tony's arc from the first film. He starts out sort of a pompous jackass and ends up a little more humbled and having, you know, learned a new lesson about himself. Basically, exactly like he did the first time. And I remember watching the second film and wondering why he seemed like he hadn't learned anything from the first movie. Yes, he's he's got superpowers, but he still seems like he's out of control in some respects. Um, And... And Iron Man 2 just doesn't push a whole lot forward. It really does feel like the MCU is trying to find its way more than anything else. And this being that it's basically, I, th- I think, the se- still the second film in the MCU uh, in the MCU franchise, basically, at that point, um, coming out the same summer as The Incredible Hulk, uh, you can kind of tell that they weren't exactly sure what they wanted to do, where the, what the, the long game was at this point. And there's just a ton of bizarre choices here involving Mickey Rourke's character, and there's really not enough Sam Rockwell. Then again, there's never enough Sam Rockwell. Number five, we have Thor, The Dark World. There's still a lot of that biting-its-time feel uh, still at play in the second Thor film here, in that you can tell that um, Kevin Feige and some of the other heads of Marvel Studios we're still trying to figure out, okay, well, where are we all going with this, and how do we want to build to the uh, the, the, the ultimate showdown with Thanos and the Avengers and all that. But at least this one follows both the Avengers and Thor, follows the, both of the storylines uh, 
in, in a pretty satisfying way, developing both Thor and Loki, and including a plot that at least does center on one of the Infinity Stones. Even though its villain is incredibly weak, and the film still has Natalie Portman, Kat Dennings, and company really weighing it down, which is weird to say that Natalie Portman is weighing a movie down, because this is an Oscar winner, and, you know, <laughs> one of the most talented actresses of her generation... And uh, she really has no place in these movies. And she, to me, she's always so, sort of felt like she was in the way of what the Thor films really could be. So the fact that Thor Ragnarok is sort of shedding a lot of the elements of the first two films that really did um, really did keep it from becoming something truly special and different it is definitely a testament to the fact that, uh, that the Thor franchise has evolved from when it started. And there's still some fun visual set pieces and a lot more of Asgard in place here. And, um, but still in the end, this year's Ragnarok will almost certainly improve upon what director Alan Taylor did here. And you can read my full written review on Thor, the dark world in the show notes below. Coming in at number four, Avengers age of Ultron. So surprisingly this sequel to the epic game changer that was the Avengers doesn't suffer the villain problem, at least not as badly as the last two films I mentioned, Thor the Dark World and Iron Man 2 have very weak villains that feel very derivative and underdeveloped and just want power for the sake of power. Um, Ultron here is a, is a little more dynamic. I mean, he still wants power in the sake of power, and it sort of glosses over his motivation. But rather than the villain being sort of a major issue that the film has to overcome. Instead, Joss Whedon, who got so burnt out on this film that he ultimately decided to not renew a con his contract with Marvel Studios and ultimately go make Batgirl for DC, is burdened with setting up, setting up several subsequent films at once. You have seeds planted here for so many, so many films that we have already seen and still have yet to see. And uh, it doesn't really manage to set up all those films and still maintain a coherent standalone story. It just doesn't really work. Despite lots of good stuff at play here, there's still the chemistry with the characters. There's still that, that snappy uh, Joss Whedon dialogue that really works. There's a lot of visually interesting sequences. Um, Iron Man and, and, uh, and the Hulkbuster armor against the Incredible Hulk being one of the standout sequences. But the, the script just feels so rushed, and the characters' arcs are, are really breezed over in favor of bringing in elements like Wakanda, and the Vision, and Scarlet Witch, and Quicksilver, and Baron Von Strucker, and James Spader's Ultron himself. There's just seeds planted here for Black Panther, Civil War, Thor Ragnarok, and Infinity War, etc., etc. The film felt more like a transitional um, story than, than a proper sequel leaving essentially that storyline to be picked up in another film and we'll get to that in a, few, in a couple minutes here but age of ultron really fell prey to the iron man 2 of it all of just well we need to expand this out so we can so we can build more stories in the future rather than focusing on the story at hand number three iron man 3 so a lot of what Marvel did wrong in Iron Man 2 that I just referenced is rectified here. I mean, sure, Iron Man 3 is probably one of the most divisive MCU entries thanks to its twist on the um, Iron Man's arch nemesis, the Mandarin, and an all-too-convenient denouement. Look it up, kids. But Shane Black recaptures the humanity and righteous smartassery that really makes Tony Stark so much fun to watch. The plot, such as it is one, is still full of holes and there's a lot of things that don't entirely make sense or that feel sort of cliché 
But there's no denying that the reunion of Robert Downey Jr. and his kiss-kiss-bang-bang writer-director is a ton of fun and does deliver a satisfying trilogy capper for the MCU's marquee hero. Number 2. Captain America Civil War This was a tough one for me because Joe and Anthony Russo's Avengers 2.5, which is, let's break it down, basically what this is, very nearly topped this list. I mean, there's so much to love here. From the way the rivalry between Iron Man and Captain America comes to an emotional conclusion and twist involved there, to the introductions of both the MCU's version of Spider-Man at long last and Chadwick Boseman's Black Panther, the writing is tight, the action is kinetic, the central dilemma is balanced enough that viewers are justified whether they're on Team Cap or Team Iron Man, and that's a balance that Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, which tried to pull off a similarly themed storyline, didn't accomplish as well, despite being a uh, an ambitious film in its own right. Um, and, and it's no surprise that Civil War is really is among the best MCU entries yet, and ended up being one of my favorite films of last year. Again, see the show notes for that. Coming in at number one, you probably figured it out by now. Captain America, The Winter Soldier. So for me, it's always a toss-up between this one and Civil War as far as what's truly the best MCU sequel. But I'm going to go ahead and give the edge to the Russo brothers' first turn behind the lens on an MCU project. While the first Avenger told an effective period adventure story that outlined Cap's origin and led seamlessly into his modern-day awakening... The Winter Soldier really deepens those themes and turns them on their head, finds the star-spangled man grappling with a far more complicated reality than the one he left um, when he went into the ice. The emergence of a mysterious Hydra, uh, <laughs> a mysterious Hydra assassin, tripped over my words there, and a game-changing revelation regarding the truth behind S.H.I.E.L.D. not only turned the Winter Soldier into a world-class example of how to make a great sequel, in the process, they turned Cap from a solid hero into a three-dimensional character just as complicated and rich as any of his fellow Avengers. It works as a political thriller, it works as a sequel to the first Avenger, it works as a standalone piece, and, it, and it's one of the few MCU films, along with Civil War, like I said, they're, they're in sort of the same category to me. It's one of the few MCU films that I can say really transcends the genre, pushes it forward, and does something interesting with it. So that's my discussion on the MCU sequels to date, but of course there's just one more we haven't talked about. So without any further delay, let's jump right into our review of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Sometimes the thing you're searching for your whole life, it's right there by your side all along. You're right. All you do is yell at each other. You are not friends. No, we're family. Except maybe her. After all these years, I've found you. And who the hell are you? I'm your dad, Peter. So, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Okay, we're going to go with our normal review format here. We're going to talk about the hype, the story, the cast, the production, and then finally, the verdict. So first, the hype. Of course, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is writer-director James Gunn's follow-up to the epically successful 2014 film that launched Chris Pratt into superstardom and made a ragtag group of outlaws, Pratt's Peter Quill slash Star-Lord, Zoe Saldana's Gamora, Dave Bautista's Drax the Destroyer, Bradley Cooper's Rocket, and Vin Diesel's Groot into a family. Based on a relatively obscure Marvel Comics title, the film was not only 
a box office sensation, but a critical darling as well, earning rave reviews from fans and critics alike. I, of course, was a bit cooler on it. I gave the film a solid 3.5 stars while Freddy loved it. I think he said in, in um, episode one of the Crooked Table podcast, The Phantom Menace, that it was his favorite film of the year, and uh, I'm pretty sure he would stand by that even now, that it was his favorite film of that year. Um, so while the rest of the world was no doubt is waiting the chance to see Baby Groot tear it up on screen, I've been far more focused more, um, on other MCU projects. I was more looking forward to the uh, Civil War film, to you know some of the other Avengers stuff, and blah, 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 and, and less, less enthused about the Guardians of the Galaxy. So the question is, does Volume 2 improve upon the first or deliver a subpar experience with the novelty of the first film's Devil May Care attitude and retro soundtrack now having washed away? Moving into the story. Now, we're going to go into no spoiler territory this time since there's actually plenty to discuss without even getting into that. And since I knew very little about the plot of the film other than the fact that it centered on Star-Lord's father and that certain characters were going to have bigger roles, Yondu and Nebula, etc. Uh, I wasn't exactly sure about any of the surprises or twists, and I thought they were really um, really effective in the moment and made the experience even that much more enjoyable. So I, won't, I don't want to get into any of that, especially since there is, like I said, plenty to talk about without delving into any of the uh, many twists in the film. But... Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 picks up just a few months after the first film, on, first film ended. This was no doubt a decision made in part to keep Groot as adorable as his Jackson 5 dancing, meme-generating counterpart from the end of the first film. Thankfully, there's no more Ronan the Accuser. Thank, thankfully, I'm going to say that as I am, because that character was so boring, I cared not at all about what he was doing. And there's no bland-as-fuck Novacore. Um, it feels like a lot of the elements from the first film that were least interesting to me were stripped away and they focused in much more on the Guardians themselves and uh, what makes those characters interesting, kind of stripping away a lot of the excess uh, background stuff that that really made me check out when I saw the first one and detracted from my score of the, the initial film. The Guardians here are doing their usual balance of bit of good, bit of bad, bit of both when the film opens and before long they find themselves being hunted by a gold-plated race of aliens known as the Sovereign and meeting Quill's enigmatic father Ego played by Kurt Russell. Now what makes Volume 2, as I sort of alluded to a moment ago, such a success is that the film eschews a traditional plot structure in lieu of a cosmic character study. Um, sure there's plenty of action, there's a lot of it set to the likes of Fleetwood Mac or the Electric Light Orchestra, but the setup here actually delves into what makes each of its characters heroes or villains alike. Um, well, I mean, some of the villains from the first one end up more falling a little more on the heroic side this time around. Um, but what, what makes them tick? And that includes the sporting players like Karen Gillan's Nebula and Michael Rooker's Yondu. It's bizarre and twisted in all the right places for a film from the man behind Slither and Super, which are both interesting films. I actually enjoy Slither uh, quite a bit more than Super, which didn't work for me even though that's that's probably honestly still the darkest film that uh, James Gunn has made thus far but there's a clear parallel here between Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 and The Empire Strikes Back in a way in that both films um, basically divide the heroes and see them sort of learn new truths about themselves and each other um, subverting expectations and of course there's the revelation of uh, the heroes the central hero's father and parentage 
um, that plays into both of those movies. And I wonder if that was intentional, like if James Gunn was moving forward with the sequel to Guardians of the Galaxy and trying to draw inspiration from some sequels that that he loved, that built upon mythologies that were in place, and the fact that Guardians of the Galaxy is essentially uh, a modern riff on the space opera genre that Star Wars brought to light in the 70s. Not brought to light, because, I mean, it had preceded Star Wars, but that Star Wars kind of reinvigorated in the 70s and 80s. I wonder if that was intentional on his part. I am venture to say that it was, because the more I think about it, the more it, seem, it does seem like both of those films were sort of... Um, outlined similarly and that they both have sort of burgeoning romances that are, are sort of on the sidelines and uh, supporting characters that come into a, uh, a, big, a bigger lead role, um, that kind of thing. It truly does set the stage for a hell of a volume three to come uh, in which Gunn is already confirmed to write and direct that film after the Infinity War goes down. So moving into the cast, of course one of the best aspects of the Guardians of the Galaxy films is its cast. That is definitely true here as well, as every actor is even more committed to the material this time around. And given the cosmic setting, it's easy for a film like this to feel ridiculous if it doesn't set the exact proper tone. And what aids the material, in addition to its tendency to never take itself very seriously, and that's pure gun all the way, is the cast's ability to sell even the most heavy-handed exposition. Surprisingly, Pratt here actually feels like he gets less of the focus this time around, because Volume 2 really emerges as even more of an ensemble affair than the first one. Bautista, despite having to break into intense laughter, perhaps a bit too often for my taste, it does seem like every other minute Drax is breaking out and in, in finding something hilarious or, or uh, you know, making, making quippy one-liners that felt like they were a bit, ex, a bit ex, um, exaggerated from the character he was in the first one. But again, you know, they're trying to push it forward and respond to what worked and what people responded to the first one. So, you know, I don't hold that against the movie. He does get some of the best jokes, and Rooker's Yondu, Yondu sorry, is easily one of the breakout stars of the film, with perhaps one of the best arcs as any we've seen in the Guardians of the Galaxy films. And he, just share, he does share some of the greatest chemistry with Rocket. Um, of course, Groot is now a baby, so they don't have that same dynamic. He doesn't have the same dynamic with Rocket that he did in the first film. But Yondu and Rocket sort of kind of pair off in this film in, in, in uh, large chunks of it in a, in a really satisfying way. Of course, with Bradley Cooper once again killing that voice work. Baby Groot, of course, steals every second he's on screen, which interestingly is the opposite of what I said about Vin Diesel's live action performance in The Fate of the Furious a couple episodes ago. And really reminded me of my infant daughter on multiple occasions. There was a one part where Groot is uh, jumping on, I think, Drax's shoulder and sort of laying his head down to go to sleep. And I was like, oh my god, that's exactly what my kid does. And it was really, it, you could tell that the, the filmmakers were, were sort of modeling him after real life babies. And uh, in, in that, to tap into audiences, um, you know, familiarity with human infants and to make him even more endearing to, uh, to us along the way. And it totally worked. Moreover, the will-they-or-won't-they romance between Quill and Gamora was even more believable this time around, and, and I actually found much more emotional resonance in it, as opposed to the first one where it just seemed like Peter Quill was trying to bang her. I actually felt like there was a, a connection between them here. There wasn't just, 
you know, he thought she was hot and she was like, all right, whatever. I guess I'll dance with you for a second and then pull back. It was a lot. You could tell that she softened out a lot between movies and that he, uh, that they've sort of developed a mutual respect and sort of admiration for each other that really comes into play by the end of the film. That, of course, is thanks to Gunn's writing, but also Saldana's performance. It's really a testament to just how poorly the recent Star Trek films have used her that the Guardians of the Galaxy films have made her such a, a, an interesting presence. Of course, her own storyline, aside from the romance thing with Quill, involves heavily her, her sister Nebula and the rivalry going there. And even that I found a lot of... Uh, I, I found much more connected to than I did in the first film. It, it, really, is a, it really just goes to show you that if the first movie introduced the world and the characters, by the end of it, the heavy lifting had been out of the way, and Volume 2 just gets to sort of sail in and uh, and focus on the characters without having to explain who they are or their dynamics. In much the same way that the original X-Men film set up, okay, this is these are mutants, these are the characters, this is Magneto, this is Professor X, this is their teams, this is how they all relate, and then by the end of the, then by the time that that's done, it's basically the end of the movie, and it's not until the second film that you're able to kind of hit the ground running. And I think James Gunn took uh, took much, took, took, really took use of, of the, the uh, concept of a sequel to, to be able to do that. And it does feel, as the title Volume 2 would, would uh, imply, it does feel like a pretty, a pretty strong continuation of the first movie and that it, it easily flows right into this one. Um, Russell, of course, Kurt Russell here is tons of fun in what is ultimately a slightly underdeveloped role, um, though, you know, with good reason as it turns out. And Palm Clementiev is a welcome addition as Mantis, who certainly will have more to do in Volume 3, as will Sylvester Stallone in his small role as Stacker Augard, uh, aka Starhawk. Sadly, he doesn't share any screen time with Kurt Russell, that Tango and Cash reunion I mentioned up front. Never does come to pass, unfortunately. Um... You know, I think it's just great to see Stallone pop up in a random, randomly in a film like this. And the same thing for Kurt Russell. There's some great uh, nostalgic references in these films to the 1980s and that kind of thing, which is the same era in which he was starring in Escape from New York and The Thing and Overboard and a lot of the classic movies that people love Kurt Russell from. Uh, not that Overboard is as beloved as his other films, but let's be honest, that's a TBS classic that you totally watched on a lazy Sunday afternoon, so don't even front... Um, the only cast member who really felt underserved in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is Karen Gillan, whose nebula does take a step in the right direction, but her performance does feel like it's largely limited to grunts and sort of rage-filled screams. And, you know, should Karen Gillan pop up in Infinity War? I think, I'm assuming she is, because her storyline is probably more tied to Thanos than anybody else's at this point. Uh, I just I hope they do they do flesh her out the rest of the way and make her a uh, fully developed character. So moving into the production, the visual effects here are of course are astounding, and there's large chunks that feel as CGI heavy as they really are. I mean, you look at this and you can tell that it uh, it does look like like unreal because you know it's supposed to be, but it's uh, it's not exactly the kind of visual effects where you're like oh my god that looks so realistic it's not supposed to it's it's a fantasy world and there's nothing wrong with that um but you know the bright colors the eye-popping design of it all really does feel like a comic book come to life and the first guardians was was already pretty trippy but gun takes it even farther this time around especially with ego's planet and to me it will be a shock if the visuals aren't oscar nominated also of course the music here 
while maybe not as memorable as the first film, the first one did seem to focus a little more on like Motown era R&B and that kind of thing, which is more my jam than uh, some of the some of the more classic rock heavy um, tunes that Gunn selected this time around. But still, incredibly well placed in the movie from the opening credit sequence, which is sure to be a standout for viewers, especially seeing as it capitalizes so well on the first film's conclusion, and that's all I have to say about that. Um, the Tyler Bates score, though, is another thing. It really does feel derivative uh, to previous MCU music, and not nearly as distinctive as the characters in Guardians of the Galaxy themselves. In fact, Volume 2 is perhaps the most disconnected MCU film so far, as far as the big picture narrative. Yeah, there's references to Thanos and uh, Infinity Stones and that kind of thing, but there is no, there are no characters here who pop up in any of the non-Guardians films, unless uh, other than Stan Lee, spoilers, but we'll mention him in a second. Um, and, and not even, even Doctor Strange tied into the Avengers proper, in a post-credit scene, and there's not even that. I mean, there yes, there are post-credit scenes. There are several mid and post-credit scenes actually, touching base with various characters and really sort of keying up for either Infinity War, which is the most likely place we're going to see any of these characters again, or Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three. But there are no, there is no scene where Iron Man shows up and is like, oh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Who the hell are those people? There's nothing like that. Um, and I think that's really just goes to show that Marvel Studios has a ton of faith in James Gunn in the Guardians uh, as a property in and of itself to not have to feel like it has to constantly loop in Captain America, Iron Man, etc. And it can really let it stay on its own. Of course, there are MCU Easter eggs in here. There's a key one involving Stan Lee's cameo that has been reported on several times. So you probably already read about it. Um, but if you haven't, I don't want to spoil that. And if you're a Marvel, if you're a Marvel Comics fan, you'll totally get it. If you're not, read about it after the fact, and you'll, uh, you know, it's pretty cool what they what they did with it. It is a, that it is pretty blatant what they're trying to go for, but welcome example of fan service. And of course, there's a reference or two to some other Marvel characters. Like I said, no Avengers, but uh, one character that we saw briefly in the first movie, and another one who's alluded to to show up in in uh, Volume Three. But, uh, you know, the film surprisingly doesn't really take on too many huge new characters. I mean, we have Ego, we have Mantis, and other than that, it really expands upon the characters that are in there and streamlines uh, streamlines the number of uh, characters that it's focusing on, in a way. Like I said, there's no Nova Corps, there's no Ronin, there's no Thanos, there's none of that crap. It's just it's pretty much all about the main characters that you loved from the first one and a couple other people to sort of, uh, you know, give them some new conflict, give them some new character dynamics, and give them someone to play off of, basically. Uh, Gunn has such command of his camera here in this one. It really is clear that he's grown as a filmmaker from the first film. I mean, remember, this is a guy who started off as a screenwriter, mostly, and uh, really started making smaller... Um, smaller, edgier films like Slither, like Super, and Guardians of the Galaxy was his first big, you know, blockbuster, the big hundred and something million dollar, whatever the budget on that film was, I think it was like 150, um, effects-driven picture, and you can tell that he's, he's much more confident in this, this time around to take the characters where he needs them to go and to realize their world and, and trust the audiences to follow the him on this journey. There's sharper humor and there's more pointed visual gags. There's a lot of 
uh, very inventive sequences and, and very surprising in that this is a major Hollywood blockbuster which will probably probably hit a billion honestly probably hit a billion dollars worldwide and there are long drawn out character beats there's long gags that play out for several minutes and and uh, it's kind of a risky move it does sort of feel that you do sort of feel that sort of um not so i guess indie let's just for lack of a better term indie film spirit uh, that guns has sort of taking shape within this huge movie and like the highest grossing film franchise of all time and that's really impressive that his voice has still stayed intact considering everything that's at play here so finally the verdict while i was only a moderate fan of guardians of the galaxy volume two is an improvement in many ways to me uh it's funnier than the first film, like I said, with more inventive action, more surprising twists, and more developed heroes to root for. The film even manages to sort of fix the MCU's villain, pro villain problem in an interesting way, and I'll let you guys see the film for yourself so I don't spoil that. The first one really left me interested but not hooked to see where the Guardians would go in future films, but after Volume 2, it took them to a much higher place, at least in my opinion. I can't wait to see how they play into the battle against Thanos and how they clash with the Avengers themselves. Volume 3 is already shaping it to be a promising finale to what will probably be the Guardians trilogy, and it's now catapulted to my most anticipated MCU films. Um, as far as which is the better film, if you're going for narrative structure, probably Guardians of the Galaxy, the first one, but if you're going for, you know, satisfying to watch, for character development, for a, a richer experience on the whole, I would probably say Guardians of the Galaxy Guardians of the Galaxy. That's kind of hard if you. It's kind of hard to say when you try and say it fast multiple times. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two is a vast improvement. I mean, if you look back at the Star Wars trilogy, and that's of course is for many people the gold standard as far as film trilogies. The first one is a pretty clear act, three act narrative that has a beginning, a middle, and sort of follows the hero's journey pretty well. You could say the same thing about Guardians of the Galaxy. Empire Strikes Back is a little looser plot-wise, but ultimately the better film because of the twists, because of the characters, because of the action scenes, because of the, the humor, because of the way that the, it has grown the first film. And I think Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is pretty much in step with that. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is near Empire Strikes Back, at least not in my estimation, but it, it does smartly follow that formula which you know i i just hope it doesn't slip in i hope volume three doesn't slip into like what the star wars trilogy did which is return of the jedi being the weakest of the three i hope james gunn is able to keep that momentum going strong and create one of the one of the best superhero trilogies ever put to film i would put that up against the dark knight trilogy even though the dark knight rises is probably you know by far the weakest film and not nearly the, as good as it thinks it is and uh the captain america trilogy so i would love to see guardians of the galaxy get there and right now we're two for two with this one already being a step up this is an easy four out of five for for me if you loved guardians of the galaxy i think you'll love this one even more if you liked guardians of the galaxy i think you'll like this one even more as i did so that's all I have for this week. Subscribe to the Crooked Table podcast on iTunes or Stitchers. Leave us a review if you'd be so kind. You can find me on Twitter at Crooked Table, Facebook, and the other social medias. 
Also visit CrookedTable.com for more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies. Next week, I'm still a bit undecided about what to talk about. I might end up just touching base on the new Amy Schumer, Goldie Hawn comedy, Snatched. It feels only right since Hawn's been a longtime favorite of mine and just got the neighboring a neighboring Walk of Fame star next to her longtime love, Kurt Russell, who I talked about in this episode, who I talked about a few episodes ago on Fate of the, Fe- Fate of the Furious, who's really been popping up a lot these days, and that's, that's really exciting to see. He sort of faded off on us for a while and then came back with a vengeance and death proof. So it's nice to see uh, it's nice to see Kurt Russell doing so so much these days. And, you know, I feel like Goldie Hawn should get her due. So I think we're probably going to talk about Snatched. And I'm not sure if I'm going to find a Let's Talk About Six to sort of go with that or, or if, uh, maybe squeeze in some other reviews. But that'll have to wait until next week. Until then, I've been Rob. We'll catch you around the table next week. Roll credits. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of a low KED.